Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome back to another episode of Believe in the Press Road. Jonah Siegel here in Seattle, Washington, uh, which is now known as Ground Zero in, in the Corona world. It is uh, morning here, Wednesday morning, hump day. Um, all is well, happy to report. Uh, except for the fact that everybody's going a little stir crazy because nobody's really leaving the house to do anything. And uh, I'll tell you an interesting story. Um, the fall of 2004, I was commuting back and forth from Detroit to Toronto as I was embarking on a return back to the city, uh, having accepted a job with AOL. I've been living in in Detroit, the suburbs of Detroit. Um, had one kid and one in the oven. And uh, until number two was ready to come out, ripe if you will, um, I commuted. I used to drive from Detroit uh, to Toronto, typically Sunday nights or very early Monday morning, and then make the reverse commute on Thursday afternoon or Thursday evening. And on one of those drives, a, a friend asked me if I would mind taking a passenger back to Toronto with me and having someone in a, in a very long, boring four hour drive uh, was always appealing to me. And that person ended up being Kenny Daniels. Uh, Ken was Toronto born, Toronto raised, and was obviously working for the Red Wings. I think he was going back to visit a parent. And uh, we got to spend four to four and a half hours uh, on the 401 driving from Detroit back to Toronto. And that was, I think, the first time we really met. And uh, one of the really good guys in the game, and I'm really happy to have Ken join us this morning. How are you, Ken? Good, Joan. I obviously didn't bore you too badly on that that drive-in, or we wouldn't be talking today. So that's good. I actually recall we. I, I can only speak for myself, but it was actually so so much fun that at one point we sat at whosoever house we were at, um, right near Forest Hill Collegiate, I believe, and I looked at you at one point and go. Um, do you want to go in? Like we'd been, we continued the conversation long enough that we had been sitting outside whosoever house we were at for a good 10 or 15. My brothers. And yeah, my brothers. we wrapped yeah. it up. Yeah. How are, uh, how are things in Michigan right now? Same as everywhere else in the world. We're all on lockdown, but uh, going a little nuts. Um, my wife actually who's a, uh, does real estate, but also a fitness instructor had a, had 10 people out in the park today working out six feet apart and cleaning off all the equipment, but they did their aerobics outside because all the gyms are closed. So the only thing I thought in this lockdown I could look forward to was at least I could go to the gym every day. Now the gym is closed. So I'm sort of stuck. I'll have her work me out here at home. But uh, other than that, same as everyone else, trying just trying to get through this. And uh, as we like to say, we're not here to see through one another. We're here to see one another through. So we're, if we all do that, we'll be okay. Yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly interesting. Um... I try very hard not to compare the two, but the only thing from a sports and entertainment perspective that comes to mind of any semblance to me is, is September 11th, where again, temporarily, but the whole world shut, literally shut down. I was again back in Detroit at that time, but uh, the only time I can remember everything being shut down was September 11th. And this is nowhere near that, but it, it, it's certainly uh, a reminder. Yeah, for sure. And in those times, I remember the World Series could, you know, help unite people and, and give them a, a bit of a reprieve, not much, but a bit of a reprieve and something else 
to think about. Uh, I still remember Letterman being off for those nights and when Dave Letterman finally came back and when he allowed to laugh again after September 11th, when was it okay? And But now even most of those shows are shut down and for good reason and you don't want people together. And it's it's just sad, but um, if if we, we all work with one another and we can get this thing under control in the next two to three months, hopefully, it uh, it'll beat the what what could be devastating long term so that's the main thing do it now yeah i mean uh, it's funny it's it's interesting to hear that your wife as a personal trainer is is busy cuz that's good one of the things that had erroneously popped into my mind was that it's one of the professions i wouldn't want to have because i imagine nobody would want to come see you but the fact that you can do it in decent weather i hope in a park yeah. is, uh, is is nothing short of brilliant well, she she thought of that and had 12 people out there today, and I I videoed them, and they were all apart from one another, and they she had the the Clorox napkins right there to wipe off all the equipment for everyone, and everyone was wearing gloves. It was still cool outside, but they're all in gloves, so I think they were uh, smart enough to be safe enough, and that was a good thing because we knew it was a matter of time till all the workout facilities would be closed. And she had been teaching classes uh, within workout facilities, and even before they closed, I said, "You know what? This isn't a good idea. I know you're paid per class, but this is not a good idea to be in there with people sweating and in close quarters." And so I was, I was actually thankful in that way that the the gyms have shut down too for now. Smart. So let's, uh, let's take a, a step back in time, if you will. You're Toronto native, um, grew up in the, in the 416, uh, Forest Hill area, I believe. And mm-hmm. your, uh, your Wikipedia page uh, could use some editing, but it says that... Uh, <laughs> I don't look at it, so you tell me. <laughs> yeah, it needs some editing. Um, it says you were a hockey official on the ice from the age of 11 uh, until the that, end that's of correct. your career. That's correct. So were you, were you calling games at Forest Hill Collegiate? Was that it? No. I w- well, I was a hockey official. I was a referee because even at 11, I would do the young kids like the Adams, minor Adams, you know, the little kids, the Tykes. So I'd be out there refereeing. It was just a way for me to, to make some bucks. It was three fifty a game back then or $4 a game, and you went up, and then I gradually worked my way up. I did it all through high school and worked in the Metro Toronto Hockey League. Um, so I was refereeing till I was 21 or 22, did some junior B games. So it was a good living for me. It really was. I worked a lot. Uh, thankfully, up until I got my own car when I was 17, um, I had my parents' car, so they let me take that. So, you know, 16, 17, I was driving, or they would drive me to games or work close by. And as for uh, announcing, I actually got my start at Forest Hill Collegiate. Those in the Toronto area or those who are CFL fans may remember um, the late, great Leo Cahill. Uh, And Leo used to work at Chum Radio doing the sports in the morning and, you know, football coach, but also at time had spelled off doing sports on the radio. And I used to mimic Leo Cahill's voice. I did it for him one time when I got in the business. I'm not so sure he appreciated it, but we did have a laugh about it. But I used to go on saying, this is, this is Leo Cahill, FHCI Sports, Forest Hill Collegiate Institute Sports. And I would do the announcements, writing my own copy after I played for the high school hockey team, Mike Keenan was our high school coach at Forest Hill Collegiate. So I played for the high school team and I would do an update on that or football scores. Our football team wasn't very good. I, I, I think they scored one point all year. That was on a missed field goal. It was horrible. But at any rate, so I would do the updates on the sports uh, uh, out of the vice principal's office, Mr. Gottlieb's office at 1045 in the morning over the uh, loudspeaker system. And that was how I was my first 
broadcasting gig, I guess, was at Forest Hill Collegiate mimicking Leo Cahill. The strangest thing is I still have all the reports that I wrote. I kept them all. And I still have them to look back at it and see the buddies that I grew up with and their names in the sports cast was pretty cool. And I, I sent them to, to some of the guys. And that's really where I started broadcasting. And then at Willow Downs Cable, I had a short-lived uh, television show called MTHL Weekly, the Metro Toronto Hockey League, which is now the GTHL. And I had uh, John Gardner, who was the president, great man of the uh, Metro Toronto Hockey League, was my first guest on there. I had some officials on there. And that was my foray into television. It was a uh, working when you could work community cable. So between Forest Hill Collegiate loudspeaker over the uh, system and working Willow Downs Cable, those were my first two gigs in broadcasting, I guess, before the age of 18. And are you still in touch with Mike Keenan at all today? I haven't been lately. I know he lives down in Florida now. He'd been in Russia for a while, and I know uh, he'd been ill with some types of cancer and beating that. And I know he raised some money for his daughter who had a, a retina issue, a serious retina issue um, uh, that, that Gayla had. And, uh, you know, so we don't talk as much as we used to, but we, we did in the past. And, you know, I learned a lot from Mike. I, I remember at Forest Hill before, you know, he would, he would coach our team. He was coaching the Whitby Senior A Warriors, Senior A Hockey player coach. Eddie Shack was playing there. Tom Shotgun Simpson was playing there. Mike would run a hockey school, Blades Hockey School in Pickering, just outside Toronto during the summer. And I was a counselor at his camp where I got to, you know, Tom Simpson, Shotgun Tom, 50-goal scorer in Toronto for the Toros, was one of my idols growing up because I couldn't get into Leaf games, but my brother John had season tickets to the Toronto Toros. So I used to go to every game and watch Frank Mahovlich and Tony Featherstone and Mike Amodio, all those guys back then, and Gilly Graton, all I could name you, all the, all the guys back then. And Tom Simpson, I, and then I wind up at Mike's Hockey School in Pickering in the summertime playing after the kids go home at the end of the day playing hockey with Tom Simpson. So, you know, Mike was not only player coach in Whitby, he was also coach of the Oshawa Junior B Legionnaires. So he would coach our high school team. He was our phys ed teacher and history teacher. And then after school, he'd head back to, to Oshawa or Whitby, whatever he was doing, and, uh, and be a coach there. So uh, you lose touch over the years. Uh, on occasion, I last spoke to Mike probably a couple of years ago or so. He's got a book coming out uh, that Jay Greenberg is writing. And I know Jay contacted me about uh, Mike's life story that uh, he's doing in, in concert with Mike. So don't talk to him as much as I used to, but boy, we learned a lot. As I said, we'd sit in his phys ed office and he'd say, Daniels, I want to coach in the National Hockey League. And I said, I want to broadcast the National Hockey League. And I have a picture of Mike when I was filling in for Hockey Night in Canada. And it was at Joe Lewis Arena, ironically, where I worked for many years after that. But it would have been 90 or so, and Mike was head coach in Chicago, and he was my intermission guest because I was hosting at the time. So two guys at a Forest Hill Collegiate. Um, Lauren Michaels may have been the most famous to come out of there, but uh, then maybe Mike Keenan. I'm way down the list, but we would. Uh, I, I wound up when I was hosting Hockey Night, Mike was one of my intermission guests. So uh, that, that was pretty neat that we could both find uh, the same path, albeit different, uh, from Forest Hill to the National Hockey League. And you know, he's got the reputation of being Iron Mike, um, making air quotation marks a little crazy, if you will. Um, were, there mm -hmm. signs of it, were there signs of it back then? Um, I wouldn't say crazy. I would say distracted. We'd always laugh about that because he had a million things going on and maybe it was just a, a mind game to him. 
like he'd sort of be there and not be there, and yet he'd know totally what he was doing. You know, Scotty Bowman was one of his idols, and Scotty could sort of be the same way, but you couldn't put anything over on him. And funnily enough, Mike's from Bowmanville, Ontario. So, you know, Scotty Bowman wound up being his idol. Bowmanville's just outside of, of Toronto near near Oshawa. Um, Mike, I think, could be distracted probably because he had so many things going on. I know he would have us running a mile on, on what was called the belt line, just a, a, a long stretch of road uh, near Forest Hill Collegiate and you had to beat your time by the end of the week and you know he'd sit up in the stands sometimes and on a Monday morning some of our guys might have a little bit too much partying on the weekend and we'd have early morning practice at 7:30 before school started at 9 because we had a, an arena right by the school Forest Hill Arena and Mike would sit up in the stands and some of the guys would lay down near the near board so he wouldn't see them because they didn't feel like skating and we'd all head off the ice at, at the end of practice and Mike would be standing there and say you and you 50 laps and he'd watch it he knew you didn't skate you thought you could pull stuff over on him but really you couldn't and if you weren't playing well I remember Mike brought me out for a, a junior B exhibition game uh to play to see how I could do now I obviously not of great height I knew I wasn't going to make it very far I could skate okay but I, I knew these guys were really good and I went to hit somebody and just missed and I kicked the puck away and I come back to the bench and uh, I feel this hand on my shoulder and all it said was Daniels if you're too scared to freeze the puck sit the effing down and that was about it so I sort of knew right then you know uh, he didn't, he didn't miss anything and he wouldn't be scared to tell you. And he was the one who invited me out just to see, but I think it was a lesson to say, yeah, you think you're a good player. You're not nearly as good as these guys. And, uh, I wasn't, but it was still, I learned so much just about the game, uh, breakout plays. And he had a, he had a, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff he took from Fred Shiro, whom he idolized and wound up coaching in Philadelphia, of course, but we had playbooks at Forest Oak Collegiate. You had to take home the playbooks for practice drills. You had to know what you were doing. And when he, he'd skate with you in practice, when, when Mike took part in practice and you'd see him zing a pass and boom, and right through people. And he was, he was good. He was good. Certainly, you know, uh, at our level, he's good. I think he went to the Vancouver Blazers at the WHA's camp, I believe, um, back in the day in the, uh, in the early seventies, but he was, you know, I had him at high school, Forest Hill Collegiate would have been the mid seventies. But uh, he, he could skate, he could play, and uh, we learned a lot from him. And, and to this day, everyone, we get together, groups of friends, and we talk about Mike. Everyone respects, respects him. We laugh with him. And when everybody runs into him, he remembers names of people. So, yeah, crazy at the NHL level. And I used to, you know, hear things when I got in the game, and I'd, we'd call and we'd talk. I'd go, why would you do that? Why would you do this? And Mike, you got to back off here. So we'd shoot the shit that way, and um, he got it. He knew why, but it was him, right? He just, that's who his personality was. And I guess you could say in many respects, the same way as Mike Babcock and they were successful and that's what got you there. So it's really tough to change, even though the times have changed. And on that note, I, and I asked Scotty Bowman about that and I can't say he disagreed. You know, we talk about Mike Babcock and, and in his fifties and just as parents today and how we relate to children today and it's so different and you got to change with the times. And they said, Scotty Bowman changed with the times. And I said it to Scotty and Scotty, when the Red Wings won the cup in 02, I believe Scotty would have been 69 years old, late sixties. But think of the core group that Scotty Bowman had on that team at that time, whether it be Eisenman 
or Fedorov or Chelios or Larionov, guys who were in their mid to late 30s, many of them. So those guys in their mid to late 30s and Scotty Bowman's 69, it's like father and son. If you're close to 40 and you got a dad who's 70, the gap's really not that big. You understand one another better. But if you're a 55-year-old head coach or a 58-year-old head coach and your core group at Mitch Marner is 22 or whatever it is or 23, are you necessarily relating the same when you don't have an older core group outside of maybe John Tavares and a few to really look after and say, ah, screw him. It's just him being him. Don't worry about him. When the Red Wings, when Scotty was 69, he had that core group in their late 30s, could look at the guys in their 20s and go, I got gotcha. you. Don't worry about it. Or they could go to Scotty because they could relate to Scotty a little better because they were closer in age. Who's going to do that to a coach who's a little older and majority of their team is all in their 20s? The times have changed that way. So Scotty didn't necessarily dispute that. I don't know if he so much changed with the times in that he could back off a little because he had an older group who could look after the younger players for him. He didn't have to be the guy doing it. Does yeah, that make sense? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I guess we don't spend a ton of time on the X's and O's side of it here. I mean, the only thing that I would say that seems odd given what you've said is how he treated Jason Spezza. Um, you know, Patrick. Oh, you're talking about Mike? Yeah. So, so, so yeah. Patrick Marlowe. Um, exits, um, right, and in comes a replacement, if you will, another a father figure for the locker room, and yeah. uh, he completely embarrassed and disrespected him. Um, right, and with, that's been done in the past. I, I remember Mike Keenan and benching Dale Howard, Chuck going, "I yeah, it's not the first time it's happened. I don't get it. You think in this day and age it wouldn't, but it's the same as Mike with the with the Mitch Marner incident." Um, I don't know why they do it. I think after the fact now they can see the error of their ways. I know when the Jason Spezza thing came down, I thought, boy, that's just not right. Why are you bothering with that? But somewhere in there, big picture, they think I'm going to set the room this way. Or maybe he didn't want Jason Spezza, Spezza as much as maybe his general manager did. You know, so much goes into the thinking in that moment, and I'm not saying it's right thinking. And if you had to do it again, boy, you do it differently. Because as soon as that happened, I thought, boy, this is going to piss off the room. And why embarrass a veteran like that? Well, especially, I don't know why. Especially if your first comment is right, and that is, if he needed that presence in the room to be the camp counselor, if you will, to be the grown-up, um, to to alleviate that pressure and that that responsibility uh dumping all over a guy that you're going to be leaning on and counting on isn't necessarily the right way to do it but uh, yeah you're right and you know i, I remember dave Poulin telling me and mike told me the same thing that that when dave was mike's captain in the 80s in philadelphia and a young captain mike would tell him ahead of time i'm going to embarrass you i'm going to lay this on you you're going to have to take this and he would, and he'd single him out in front of the whole room. Now, that was the time in the 80s, whereas maybe back then, you know, Scotty Bowman would just ignore you. Mike would make an example of you to the rest of the room. And maybe that's what Mike Babcock was doing in this instance. I don't know. I never spoke with him about it. I don't think it was the right thing to do, especially in this day and age with the kids today who, uh, who don't really just go along with things. They, they will ask you why. 
why are we doing this? <laughs> They'll question things now and they want answers. So they're looking at that and you're saying, why would you do that? And you got no real answer for it. That becomes a problem. So uh, let's go back. Let's continue our history tour, if you will. So, so yep. you go through Forest Hill. Uh, it sounds like you get through York University. and do Somehow. <laughs> refereeing a lot of kids games, apparently. Um, yeah. You, you do some radio in Oshawa. And then you end yep. up at a little station, CJCL, uh, mm -hmm. 1980. It says here that you were covering the political beat and general news. That must have been fun. Well, I was doing overnight news to start. Larry Silver, who was just a crazy mother, and he was, uh, what, a, what a dude he was. But he, I remember I applied out of Oshawa when I was doing the political beat there too, covering Oshawa, Durham City Council and Pickering and Oshawa. And I do that during the week and I would do the AM, FM morning news from like six until noon on Saturdays and Sundays. And Larry Silver called me one day. I had applied to a bunch of different radio stations back then. I went everywhere, Northern Ontario, just trying to be hired somewhere. And Larry called me at home at my parents' place where I was living. And he said, I've got two tickets on the TTC to offer you and not a whole lot of money. And yeah, that was about 1980 and was overnight news. And I said, I'll take it. So I left Oshawa and I would go in at 9.30 at night uh, to do the news every half hour or so back then at CJCL and it used to be CKFH, CK Foster Hewitt and CJCL took over telemedia broadcasting, got the station from Foster Hewitt. Um, so it changed over the call letters. They were becoming all news and I would go in at 9.30, 10 at night and work until eight in the morning, going to the, the police station in the morning, getting the cop reports, writing up stories for the, uh, the guys in the morning news. And then I'd go home and sleep all day. That was basically, uh, my life and I'd cover, yeah, I covered everything from the Pope's visit. I'd cover city hall. Uh, good friend of mine, Steve Pakin would cover city hall for CHFI. He was breaking into the business uh, as was I at the time. So it would have been early eighties. I even had an office at city hall, if you can believe it. I wasn't much of a news junkie, but at that time it was just versatility. They knew I could fill it on sports. They knew I could do news, just make yourself, you know, indispensable, do whatever you could do. And I'd go cover city hall, but I'd leave for a half an hour. I'd go outside. I'd talk to people. I'd come back in and Steve Pakin would be in there all day listening. And he now is TV Ontario and a great host <laughs> and has his own TV show, um, the agenda in Canada. So he does a great job. And, uh, and, and I, he, I would leave and he'd be in there the whole time. And, and he'd listen to my report on the radio and, and I'd listen to his and he said, how is it possible that you weren't even in there for half of this <laughs> and your report was better than mine. And I said, because less is more, you actually get into the minutia of the whole thing. I just want the basic details, throw a clip of the mayor talking and be done in 40 seconds. That was it. I'm not that smart as you. I'm not, you're brighter than I am. I don't need all, all, all the, the little details here. So he just laughed about that. So I, I just learned how to get it done, get to the point. It was a great training ground on how to speak, how to ask questions, how to be concise, and ultimately working my way through to doing morning radio and sports updates and being on television and, and writing scripts with, with 15 second intros. Radio is a marvelous training ground. And that was great because I was flying by the seat of my pants. I had to know all the city councillors and, and the, the aldermans in, in Toronto and who was running. And it was a, it was a great learning ground for me. So then somehow, um, you end up as the play-by-play -play voice for the Toronto Maple Leafs in 1988. Is that right? 
Yeah, that would be, yeah, give or take or early 89. It was, uh, I had just, I had come back. I'd done the Seoul Olympics. That's right. It would have been 89, January 89, I think would have been my first game. But I came back. I I'd now, uh, so I graduated from radio and I was still doing radio part-time. Uh, it had not become the fan yet in the late 80s. It was still CJCL, but I got a job at CBLT, so CBC Local Television in Toronto, um, uh, filling in during the summer, auditioned there and got the job in the mid-80s at CBC. Um, and this was years after I wrote Brian Williams a letter at the age of 17, wanted to talk to Brian Williams, Canadian Brian Williams sportscaster, uh, the great sportscaster, um, about careers in journalism. And Brian said, sure, come on down and see me. I'm 17 years old. Well, at about 26 years old, I wound up taking the spot that Brian vacated at local television to go to network sports. So I just stayed in touch with Brian over the years. But that's why I tell people, don't be scared to ask questions. Don't be scared to write those who you think may be able to help you or now whatever it's reach out, however people reach out today. Um, don't be scared to ask. And Brian reached back to me. And it's strange, when I got the job at CBC, now hired through a part-time summer replacement, then got the job full-time, again, doing the weekend sports, which came into Windsor. So a lot of people, when I came to Detroit, knew me from CBC television. And I worked with Bill Lawrence. And Jonah, I don't know if you remember Bill Lawrence. I uh, used to do Tiny Talent Time on Channel 11 and was the weatherman for CBC. And Brian Williams and, and Bill Lawrence shared an office together at CBC. Well, when Brian vacates, and I'm one of the three sports guys in there with Don Martin and Vic Router originally, and I went into that office and kids after, you know, being there a year or so would call me and I'd say, yeah, give me a call next month, blah, 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 and, and we can meet. And I'd hang up the phone and Bill Lawrence would say, you know what you're doing to that kid, inviting him down and talk to him about careers in journalism. That's what Brian Williams used to do all the time. And I said, Bill, I was one of those kids pestering Brian Williams all the time. And that's just paying it forward. And that's what I did. So I'd been working at CBC television and doing some radio and became the sports guy at CBC. And then late 80s, after I'd done the Seoul Olympics, the most nerve-wracking experience I've ever been involved in calling sports you're not familiar with, but I got through that. That was a great experience too, flying by the seat of your pants, sort of play-by-play. I'd never done hockey play-by-play -play before anywhere. And Alan Davis, who was running the, uh, the radio station that, uh, you know, CJCL, that before it became the fan that had the Maple Leaf rights, uh, Joe Bowen needed a fill-in guy because Joe would do global television. And Joe's still the voice of the Maple Leafs. And Alan called me and he said, I need you to fill in for Joe Bowen to do Toronto-Boston tomorrow night. And I, because it was a Wednesday night global game, so he needed someone to fill in. And I said, Alan, first of all, I've never done play-by-play -play of hockey before. And second of all, as you know, I just bought a house and tomorrow's moving day. And Alan said to me, I'm offering you <laughs> Toronto Maple Leafs radio. Get someone else to move your fucking ottoman. Those were his words. <laughs> and I said, okay. I had friends help move and I did the game and it wound up going into overtime, which is probably the last thing I needed. And I never listened to that first hockey game, although I thought I did okay for a first time out. I never listened to that hockey game again until I wound up getting the job in Detroit some eight years later. And I have it on a cassette tape still. And I said, yeah, it's not as bad as I thought. 
it's, you know, you think you're okay at the time, but you're nervous. I never listened to it again. And then the next year I wound up getting 15 and then 30. And then I was hosting hockey night at the same time as doing Leafs radio fill in play by play. And I did fill in play by play until about 1996 or so when I think that station lost the rights for a little bit and went elsewhere before they got it back. So yeah, that's was my first ever I was fortunate in that I had someone like Alan Davis who believed in me and trusted me and I didn't screw it up too badly and then got more games. And then when John Shannon came along in 93 or 94 to come back, I'd met John a few times on the road when I was doing Leafs radio. We were at Minnesota at the old Met Center with all those multicolored seats. And John was producing uh, for the Minnesota North Stars at the time. And Dave Hodge would have been there as well. And we'd go out for drinks after the game if Toronto was in town. Those were the days when you weren't flying out with your own charter right after you'd stay at the Marriott. I think it was the Marriott Hotel right across the street from the old Met Center. And we'd go for drinks after the game. And that's how I got to meet John. So John obviously took a liking to me, John Shannon. And uh, years later, he had heard that I, in the early 90s, now having done Leaf Radio and been with CBC as host, John had heard that I had sent in a tape to be the play-by-play voice of the Vancouver Canucks, which I had. And John said, I think Jim Houston's going to take that job. And I said, I think he is too. And obviously if Jim Houston or me, who are they going to take? They're going to take Jim Houston. So he said, I want you, even if you do get offered it, not to take it. I'm coming back from hockey night in Canada. And I'd like you to do play-by-play for me on hockey night, maybe some hosting too but I want you to leave radio play by play because you got too many bad habits. Meaning that, <laughs> yeah. And meaning that on, you know, you don't want the descriptive radio of he's got it. He's got it. They got it. We got it all the time. You got to let it breathe. And he teach me, which he did. And that's basically how I wound up from leaf radio and filling in and host a hockey night. Because again, you had people who believe in you like Alan Davis and John Shannon and no two better than those two. And John gave me the chance to do play-by-play for Hockey Night in Canada, which had, I guess, always been my dream. My first dream was to be Ward Cornell and then Dave Hodge at hosting Hockey Night. And I grew up listening to Dan Kelly, who was my all-time favorite, and Danny Gallivan and Bill Hewitt uh, were all my idols. Dan Kelly probably right at the very top. And um, then you wind up doing Hockey Night in Canada play-by-play, which led me to Detroit. So that's the uh, the long and short of it. So let, let's pause for one quick second, pay some bills, as they say. Um, one of the things that I've decided uh, in the corona downturn is to replace all of my white T-shirts. Um, I don't know wh- why they can't get clean in the laundry, but they can't. So I've decided to replace them all. And today we have a really cool offer from a company called True Classic Tees. Uh, True Classic Tees are based in LA. It's a t-shirt company. It's on the rise. T-shirts are soft. They hold up in the wash. Let's see. Uh, That's a test and incredibly versatile. You can wear them out. You can wear them to work out or around the house, uh, which we'll be doing a lot more of these days. Uh, The best part, they're incredibly cheap. They're only 15 bucks. And today only you can get them, even you can, can get them for even less. Mm -hmm. Go to to trueclassictees.com. And use the code at checkout, B-L-E-A-V, for 20% off. That's B-L-E-A-V at trueclassictees, plural, dot com. Uh, definitely going to be checking that one out. Now, here, here's, a, here's an even better one because I thought this whole thing was dead, but 
Um, not sure what exactly people could be betting on other than the election and maybe when the corona shutdown is going to end. But there is much, much more. I had no idea. Uh, no, there's no March Madness uh, and no, there's no leagues. But betonline.com still has hundreds, I say hundreds of places to place your bet, including their online casino with poker and blackjack. And in the absence of traditional sports to bet on, you can still bet on mixed martial arts. You ready for this one? American Idol, the election, the election, the spelling bee. And I know this is your favorite because when you used to leave City Hall, you'd visit a lot of these guys. The Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. The guy's name is Joey, Mm -hmm. I believe. They're still Mm -hmm. fun to be had, so go to Bet Online and use promo code MYPOD100. That's M-Y-P-O-D and then the number 100 to receive 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. That's right. For my listeners, it's 50% off with your promo code MYPOD100 so you can get in on the Joey Chestnut goodness. That is his name, isn't it, Joey Chestnut? I think so. And you know what else you could bet on? I'd like to know next January which rate is going to be higher, the birth rate because of the coronavirus or the divorce rate. So I I read last night that, uh, I don't know how this is possible, but apparently there's been a massive spike in the divorce rate in China already. I can't say I'm shocked. Well, I'm only shocked because they're not, I mean, they are so farther quick. ahead of us, not that much farther. Yeah. Like it hasn't been six months. Exactly. You got to give it a little bit of time. <laughs> let's put it that way. So far, so good here, but you know, <laughs> so, a lot of time to spend together. I never got couples who can actually work together and make it work. That, that uh, kudos to them. Yeah. I mean, that, that's all day stuff, right? And nights. So that's so pretty before good. we tackle, before we tackle, um, I have a, a hockey night question, then obviously a, a couple of Detroit questions and some life questions and I'll let you go. I know you are uber busy right now, unless you're actually, you can, Oh yeah. <laughs> uber, maybe you could Uber delivery drive. Um, yeah. So, am I wrong? Cause it's not anywhere in your Wikipedia page or online anywhere. Am I wrong that um, you had a stint doing some hosting at the fan? Um, I would host as a fill-in host. I never really enjoyed hosting because, you know, the Raptors came on board. So I knew John Bittle. So I was into the the Raptors at the time, but I wasn't a basketball aficionado who followed the CFL, but, you know, was an Argo fan. I was more Blue Jays and, and, and Leafs for sure. So I would do some fill-in hosting. Yeah. When Al Allen would call on me when he needed anyone, and because I was CBC television, it probably helped my brand. It helped their brand and just being out there best you could. So I'd be a fill-in host. Didn't love it. Um, talking three hours at the time and sometimes feeling I was maybe in over my head. I didn't like to, although I'm, I'm not that tall, so a lot of stuff's over my head. But I, I didn't necessarily want to be in that position. I like to speak on what I think I know anyway. So at least sound somewhat intelligent. So I did do some hosting, yes, but I was morning. I did the morning sports, even when Bob McCown was there filling in for mornings and Derringer and Marsden, I would go in and sit in with them at times. So I was the morning sports guy for a lot of years doing updates, et cetera, uh, than I would more of a three-hour host gig and filling in on weekends and stuff like that. So you did fill in as host or alternate host, I guess, during the Olympics. Is that right? Like you would host Hockey Night in Canada because Ron was overseas doing the Olympics. 
And oh, I, you're talking hockey night, not radio. No, no, I was. I, I, I've, I've moved on. Um, okay, yes, hockey, yes. Ra- yes, I was filling in right. When uh, I think it was Alberville, and when I had already started hosting hockey night, my first gig hosting hockey night in Canada in 1990 playoffs, Leafs at St. Louis game one, I was down there covering for local television, CBC, and I got a, uh, a message in my hotel room when I got back that night about 1130 from having dinner going out, and I was just covering the Leafs and Blues opening round series, and my red light was flashing in my hotel room. So this was before you were carrying cell phones, and uh, the voice was Mark Askin, uh, the producer, who said, Ron McLean has had to go home, family emergency, as it went. Found out, um, turned out, unfortunately, Carrie had miscarried. His wife had miscarried, and Ron had to go home. And Mark said, you're hosting Hockey Night in Canada tomorrow night. That's when I found out. That's when I didn't sleep. That's when the nerves started going, oh, my goodness, I'm hosting Hockey Night in Canada. I hadn't done any of that. And so as much as my story of um, filling in for my first play-by-play gig uh, at the last moment, so too was my first hosting Hockey Night in Canada gig was the same thing. So they left me Ron's jacket. Mark Askin said, we'll, we'll pin up the sleeves for you because they're going to be a little long. And at that time, Don Cherry, who was with me, uh, Don would pre-record Coach's Corner, which would go to all the different regions. So we taped it at about 4.30. And it's on YouTube. You can see it actually, probably my intro with the bad porno mustache that I had at the time. <laughs> and as the the Maple Leafs took to the ice. Todd Gill pats me on the top of the head. All the guys knew how nervous I was at that moment. And we taped Coach's Corner, and, and I would lead Don into uh, all his predictions of what would be the first-round series. At any rate, um, that's fine. That went there. I was nervous, got through it. It was okay. And then as the first period is halfway over, Don says to me, you know, Kenny boy, this isn't turning out the way that I thought it would. Leafs did come out like I thought they did so we're gonna have to do this live and I said do it live I barely got through it the first time you want to do it live for lease regions he says don't worry I was great the first time I'll be great the next (laughs) that was done to me so I said okay and we did it live for Leafs region uh, we, for the rest of the country, got the pre-tape, and we did it twice on Coach's Corner. So, again, I got through that night, and once you don't have too much time to think about it and as nervous as you can be, and Don was great to work with, you get through that the first time, and then over the years, and Elberville to the Olympics, I was supposed to do ski jumping, and Bob Moyer, the exec producer, and I guess Arthur Smith at the time, and Arthur Smith wound up going to Fox in Los Angeles and was instrumental in getting me to Detroit some years later. But at the time when the Elberville Olympics were going on, I was to go do ski jumping. And they said, Ron's going to be going over there. You have a choice. You can do ski jumping or you can host a month of Hockey Night in Canada. I said, hello, I'm Stan. Hockey Night, I'm in. So that was it. And I stayed behind and I had Mark Askin holding my hand. And uh, that's what we did. So I I hosted uh, Hockey Night in Canada, including Toronto, Montreal. And at the time, when that was going on, I believe Mark would be the first at that point, because Pat Burns was the Leafs head coach, we would get, through his insistence, and we were probably the first to do that, we had a head coach on in the middle of the game. I went out and interviewed Pat Burns in the intermission as the game was going on, the head coach, obviously intermission, the game was still in progress. 
progress, but you know what I mean. In the intermission, Pat would come off the ice and we'd interview the head coach, which really was new at the time. Hadn't been done before. You talked to a coach during the game. We did that in that time. And that was Mark and I got with, with, with Pat Burns at the time. So that was all uh, pretty neat stuff to be flying by the seat of your pants to get through. So yes, I would host hockey night then and, and go on to continue hosting until John moved me out of that role and more into play-by-play. And did you, um, have you talked to Don Cherry since his exit? No, no, I, I have not. I have not spoken to Don. I saw Don last uh, over a year ago when we were in town with the Red Wings on a Saturday night because uh, Detroit was playing Toronto on a Sunday near the end of last season. And I went over to Sportsnet to, because uh, we stay at the hotel right by their studios. And we went in and, and with Elliot Friedman and Brian Burke and, and Kiprios at the time and all the guys and David Amber uh, and Ron and Don were hosting. So that was the last time I, I spoke to Don was when I, I ran into him there and we'd shoot the breeze and he'd always say, I love you and Mick, you and Mick are the best and this and that. And, you know, Don and I always got along very well. He was always great to my son, Jamie, uh, when, when Jamie was young and, and living in Toronto and Don was always, always wonderful. So, um, 1997-98, you leave, you, you make that same drive just in opposite. I don't know how, every, how you yep. ever got back from that trip, because I'm pretty sure I didn't bring you back, by the way. Um, <laughs> no, I think I took the train, actually. Yeah, much, much, yep. much quieter, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> we, uh, you end up in Detroit. How did that, how did that come to fruition? To Detroit. Um, I was working the playoffs. The first round was Buffalo-Ottawa, that Buffalo won in seven games in overtime for Hockey Night in Canada with Greg Millen, and at the same time had a job (laughs) to do a movie called The Philadelphia Phenomenon, which you can find on VHS, a Disney movie with with Tony Danza. I was shooting that at the same time as I was working Hockey Night playoffs. And then in round two, uh, I was working... Buffalo, Philadelphia for hockey night. And we were in Buffalo and uh, Dave Strader, the late, amazing Dave Strader came into the booth during the game and he was working ESPN international with Mickey Redmond, who'd been doing the Red Wings games, but Mick was working with Dave, his old partner in Detroit. And Dave walked into the booth with me and said, Ken, and I'd known Mickey a little bit, not a lot. We'd spoken a few times and Dave came into the booth during the intermission and he said, Ken, I wanted to let you know they're letting the guy go who replaced me for one season in Detroit when I went to ESPN. They're letting him go, and Mickey wants you to send a tape in. I said, okay then. So I went out, didn't have my cell phone with me. There's a pay phone, and it's still there in Buffalo <laughs> at the rink in Buffalo. That pay phone is still there, and about a year and a half ago, Mickey and I took a picture together by the pay phone because you don't see them anymore. But that payphone's still there. And that's the payphone that I called my agent, Maury Gosfran, in New York. And I said, Maury, how fast can you get my tapes together to get them to Detroit uh, to apply for the Red Wing job? So this would have been May. And he did. And then I went down and interviewed with Atanas Illich and Toby Cunningham and Fox Sports Detroit was just coming on board then. And I didn't hear anything. So this would have been, I probably went down to Detroit in June didn't hear anything until around September the 5th and I get a call. They made me an offer and the length of deal and money wasn't anywhere near where I thought it should be to move and move my family two kids at a daughter who was just one and to uproot everybody to go without basically the security 
more or less. The length of the deal was even more than the money. And I had told them when I needed to move. And uh, in between all that, I'd agreed on a handshake deal with John Shannon to stay at Hockey Night. Remember, this is the guy who gave me my break and I owe it all to John. And uh, I agreed. And I told the Red Wings, basically through Fox Sports, I said, no, I'm not going to come. And then Arthur Smith got on the phone with me from Los Angeles, whom I mentioned was my previous boss at the network at CBC, when I was doing national auto racing and Formula One and all that, and Blue Jays baseball and everything else I'd done for CBC in a hosting role. And Arthur said, you know how hard I worked to get you here to Detroit, and now you're telling me no. And I told Arthur why. And 20 minutes later, they called back, and they gave me what I wanted. So now after a day after a handshake deal and the press release is about to go out to the newspapers, to the Toronto Sun and Toronto Star, they're calling me wanting my comment on staying with Hockey Night Canada and going forward. And I'm not calling anyone back. Now I have to call John Shannon and say, John, I know over dinner we just agreed to a handshake deal, but, and John's, and I'm in tears at the time because this is the loyalty I had to John. And I think he was sitting with Greg Millen at the time and they were both on the phone together. And I'm sitting on the front porch of my house in Toronto, so I'll never forget it. And I'm in tears because the loyalty and I was scared and what about moving and as much as I wanted this opportunity. And John said to me, Kenny, I'll handle Alan Clark, who was the head of sports at CBC television, who was a great guy. He said, I'll handle Alan Clark. You got to go because I can probably give you, including playoffs, 27 weeks, maybe 28. But the only way you're going to get better is to call 80 games a year plus playoffs and you're going to a great team. And that was it. So John talked me into leaving. And to this day, I thank him. And uh, it's been a wonderful experience. And that's how it happened. You know, it's interesting. Um, I didn't realize this, but you're, you're part of, as I understand, I'm not sure if it's, if it's sports broadcast history in, in, in uh, the States or just hockey, but on December, it says here on December 12, 2006, um, you were the first time broadcaster to be in between the benches, something that we've obviously gotten very used to as sports fans. Um, this says it was the first time a U.S. local station had attempted that to do that. And you actually got a, again, I didn't know there was a local thing, but you got a Michigan, a Michigan Emmy Award for that. Yep. Um, yep, I did. I got a sports Emmy for that. It was Ottawa, Detroit, between the benches. Yes, we were the first in the United States to do play-by-play between the benches. Not only that, uh, Chris Cuthbert um, through TSN at the time would have, I think, done it maybe four or five months earlier for the Canadian broadcast. He did play-by-play between the benches. I was the first in the United States. So the two of us were the first in each country to do play-by-play. There was some talk that Fred Cusick of the Boston Bruins had gone down, although in the old Boston Garden, you were so close to the ice, I don't know why you'd have to move. But I'm not sure whether he did or not. But I I believe we were the first in the U.S. and Chris Cuthbert at TSN in Canada. But not only was what was different from what Chris did, and this is maybe why I got the Emmy, because they couldn't refuse because I was doing three things at once, I think. Um, I was also operating the Kenny Cam. So they actually hooked up a camera from my point of view at ice level. So I'd actually operate the camera. I'd zoom in. I had a headset on to do play-by-play. I'd operate the camera too. They'd take my shot, opening face-off. They'd put up there on a font, Kenny Cam. And I would do interviews when the players came over. They'd come to me. So at a commercial timeout, I'd have a hand mic as well. And I would interview Henrik Zetterberg. There's shots of me interviewing Zetterberg between the benches. They'd come to me during timeouts. So yeah, I was uh, basically part-time host, camera operator, and play-by-play guy 
first of its kind in the U.S. Yes, Ottawa, Detroit. I remember interviewing Jason Spetz as well that game. Yeah, pretty pretty neat and and very good of Fox to try that. Um, so yeah, that was a great experience. Was there a glowing puck? I, I'm just kidding. No, no, there was no, just a glowing announcer, but there was no glowing puck. No. Uh, I want to play a clip for you. Hang on one second here. Hopefully the audio is good. Hang on. The 2008 Stanley Cup Finals, Game Six, we're at Mellon Arena in Pittsburgh, and wouldn't you know it, I come up with laryngitis. I walked to the rink, and it was about eight blocks away, and there was a Catholic church. I remember walking up the stairs to the Catholic church. I knelt down. I'm kind of whispering, and I said, "Look, I know you don't see me in here as much as you'd like." But if there's any way that maybe a silver lining can come out of this, you know, please show me the way. Ken Daniels uh, was called in from Detroit when they knew I couldn't go and, and do the game. 45 seconds left. I think it was a face-off. And Ken took his headset off, and I was standing next to Paul behind him. And he says, hey, you're doing the last 15 seconds. And I look at him, and I go, no, I'm not. He goes, yes, you are. I go, no, I'm not. I can't talk. He says, yes, you are. He said, put your headset on, suck it up, and do it. All right. Put the headset on. He throws it over to me, and I had enough voice left just to call the final 15 seconds. 15 seconds to go. That's who Crip and Ken Cal bring us home for the Stanley Cup with 10 seconds left. Gunchar puts it over the line. Lindstrom fires it out to center right. Five seconds to go. Gunchar to Malkin over the Detroit line. Pushes it forward. Back there for oh, the buffet. And the rebound. Look right through the goal mouth. Time will run out. And the Detroit Red Wings are the 2008 Stanley Cup champions. That, that's incredible. Um, the story, the story itself is amazing, but if you actually watch the clip, the fact that they won the cup is totally the afterthought because they really almost scored with like two seconds left on the clock. Yeah, Marion Hosa. Yeah, and I remember because I call Ken Cal, well, losing your voice on game six, right? And I'm in Detroit. I was going to go to the Fox 2 local station to work here uh, doing pre and post analysis. And then they called me down. So took a plane ride <laughs> down there with the families. The families of the players were all flying down at four o'clock. So I said, okay, I'll fill in for Ken and do the game and then hand it to him. I call Ken Cal Schleprock affectionately. Great, great fella. And, but if anything bad can happen, it seems to happen to him. <laughs> and if losing your voice on game six of the cup final isn't proof of that, well, there you go. So you know, I figured, I told Ken after the fact, had Marion Hosa scored on Chris Osgood <laughs> at that moment, you would have been the biggest schleprock of all time. But thankfully, they didn't, and he got to call it. My only regret is I wished I'd give it to him maybe 10 seconds earlier than I did. But at any rate, it just wasn't my domain to call, and I'm glad he could do it. And he's right, because he really didn't want to call it. And I think I threw a few F-bombs in there, too, when I hit my mute button uh, to get him to put the headset on, but he did. And it was, uh, it was a great night to experience that because, you know, for me, even being a part of it, because in television, you, you know, we were doing two rounds back then. Now we only do one round local and then you're done. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough to get some NBC games as well in the playoffs over the, the past years. But generally, you're, you're done after the first round. So to get to do be part of a, what turned out to be a Stanley Cup final, that was, that was awesome for me. And I'm, I'm glad Ken could be a, a big part of that. Well, you had that job. If my math is right, you've been there for almost... 23 years does that sound about 23 right? seasons mickey and i actually mickey and i when bob miller uh retired um and 
it was no longer a partner for Jim Fox, and now it's Alex Faust out in Los Angeles. Uh, when Bob Miller retired, Mickey and I are the longest-serving duo on television in the National Hockey League currently at 23 seasons, even though this season ended abruptly. But uh, 23 seasons in the NHL, so we're the longest-serving TV duo, and we've loved every minute of it together. You couldn't ask for a better partner than Mickey. That's awesome. I mean, that, that's a hell of a run. Um... And, and you've you've literally seen the team, you know, hoist the cup and and plummet and go to a new arena, and you've seen it all there. It, it's been amazing. Yeah, when I first got there too in '97, and Sergey Fedorov had been uh, without a contract, and you know, then it was matched the offer from Carolina that the Illiches did, and and I hadn't really seen Fedorov up close and personal for the early part of that year, and they just won the Stanley Cup, and Mickey said, "Wait till you see Sergey night in and night out." And then you know, my first year there, '97, '98, the Red Wings won '96 and '97, and then you had the tragic limo accident, which in large part, as I mentioned earlier, I didn't hear from the Red Wings till September because of Sergey and Vladdy and what happened, they obviously had much bigger things on their plate than worrying about signing a play-by-play guy to do their games. And that's why it was so late. So when I came in and then, you know, without Fedorov and then to see that great team and then Fedorov comes on board and then we win the Stanley cup the first year and Mickey said, Holy crap, are you ever spoiled? And then you get to 2002 and, you know, Kenny Holland calls me during the summer and he says, uh, I think we're going to get Dominic Hasek. And I said, what do you have to give up for that? And blah, blah, blah. And he tells me, just slap a Kozlov and picks and whatever. I said, holy crap. And then you're on Redbird to start the season and on walks Luke Robitaille and Brett Hull and Dominic Hasek. And you already got Lidstrom and Fedorov and Eisenman and Shanahan. You go, wow. You don't, don't forget that stuff. That, that's Hall of Fame stuff. And then you win the Cup in 02. And then you win again in 08. So to be part of three Stanley Cups, even though I had nothing to do with it other than being there and calling it, and to be part of that hockey town phase was uh, – Amazing. Amazing. So then, uh, like, I'll tell you, like, if you Google yourself or if you Google Ken Daniels, the, uh, the thing that comes up is the story of your son. Um, all, all 23 years in hot with the Red Wings, uh, being the host of hockey night Canada, and, uh, you're proudly carrying the torch for the legacy of your son, uh, and the charity work yeah. doing it and trying to help others, um, get through whatever tragedy they're trying to deal with at the time. Yep. And I remember right after, well, when, when Jamie always used to say to me, because, you know, I love hockey so much and that's really all I know or do. And uh, Jamie, you know, I'm, I, I love to golf, but I'm, I'm okay at it, but not very good. And I wasn't getting a whole lot better, but can, can hold my own. And Jamie used to say, boy, dad, you need a summer job. Well, unfortunately he gave me one. So now it's uh, keeping his memory alive by speaking about him best I can and shortly after Jamie passed away I know there was uh, so many articles and Craig Custins from The Athletic who did such a wonderful job when we were finally able to tell his story and end the, the shame and stigma of addiction and our hiding from it that I can only pray to God that, that other families do not we need to talk about it that I remember saying at the time, you know, when people would recognize me or sort of recognize me, they'd say, hey, there's that Red Wings guy. And now many I'm finding were going, hey, there's that, that Red Wings guy whose son passed away. And that was okay with me because if it kept Jamie's name out there and is a lesson for others and what we need to do in society and stop the influence of what doctors are prescribing and the fentanyl coming into the country 
and everything else that needs to be done and speaking publicly about it. And I've spoken probably since Jamie passed away December 7th of 2016, uh, more than a hundred times and continue to do so. Um, I was in the midst of writing my book, If These Walls Could Talk, when, when, when Jamie passed and I stopped for three months and just wrote the introduction to him and which proved to be cathartic that I could finally talk about it. And then some nine months later when Craig Custance called me to talk about the book um, from The Athletic because we shared the same publisher, Triumph Publishing, Craig had just written his book and wanted to promote mine. And then at the end of the conversation, we talked all about the book and not about Jamie. And Craig said to me, how you doing? And it wasn't like Joey from Friends, how you doing? It was, how you doing? And you can tell when people, when one has lost someone, when they say, how you doing? And you can see what their intent is and where it's coming from the heart. And that was Craig to me. And in the midst of tears, Craig and I talked for another 20 minutes just about Jamie. And Craig finally said to me, holy shit, we need to tell this story. And there was a voice in the back of my head and it was Jamie saying, yo, dad as used to say, it's okay. And it was some seven or eight months later, I mean, we didn't have Jamie's test results. You know, he was patient brokered and people, I won't go into the whole patient brokering thing here, but people can Google and what it is. And he was in a home that wasn't safe after he'd been sober for seven months and was studying for his LSATs, working for a law firm in Florida and worked so hard that the story needed to be told and Craig wrote it. And that's when it just flowed out of me. And that's when through The Athletic and they they unleashed it from the pay service and so many people read it and retweeted it. And then ESPN calls me E60 and um, you know, Mike Farrell uh, and John Barr who's a great reporter and worked um, so hard in the Michigan state story. And John did such a great job and they were so kind to me and Mike Farrell used to work for TSN and there was just that synergy there. And he knew my name and said, can we tell Jamie's story? And just to put it out there, and I, I know how many lives we've saved. I know we have. And people who've called me and reach out through Facebook and through that story and speak engagements who come up to me and say, you don't know what you did. And you saved my son. You saved my daughter. You saved my dad. And we checked the medicine cabinets. We disposed of the medicine. It's Jamie. He's doing all this. And what a wonderful tribute to him. And we're going to continue to do it. And if anyone needs information or needs help, please, I beg you, go to jamiedanielsfoundation.org. There's a help section on there. We vetted all these places so you don't end up in a bad place like Jamie did in Florida. When I begged him not to go, but he did because at 23 years old, you think you know everything. And he thought he'd be okay and save money. Well, this was nothing but a house which had drugs in it. And went to a doctor that the house sent him to that prescribed him Xanax and you don't put a recovering addict on Xanax. That's the worst thing you could do. And sure enough, Jamie started to feel invincible again and somebody gave him a pill in the house, which he shouldn't have taken, but it was laced with fentanyl and it killed him. And then they didn't call the cops for about an hour while Jamie died while they cleaned up the house, which was laced with drugs. And we don't want that to happen to anyone else. And that's why this needs to be talked about. And for people who think, you know, someone can, can battle cancer and, and they, they have that battle and they lose a lengthy battle and what a fight it was. But for some reason, there's a drug addict. There's this perception that he's dying in a laneway with a needle in his arm. And who cares? Well, that's not true. And that's not how Jamie went. And that's not how people go. It's a battle just like everything else. And we need to talk about it. And if you, it's not happening in your house, heaven forbid it's not, and good. But it's probably happening two or three doors down because the numbers show it. So if you need help, 
go to jamiedanielsfoundation.org where we've written a grant to Michigan State University that has a wonderful recovery program there for those in recovery with a, a floor of a dorm that is drug-free with recovery coaches there and counselors, which we contribute to. We're trying to do it for other colleges throughout Michigan. That's what we're working on now. And we're working for a long-term safe recovery housing here in Michigan. And we're going to get that done. It uh, may take a backseat now with what is going on in the country, and that's okay. We understand that. But the fundraising is going to continue through the dinners we do, the roasts that we do. We had a successful one last year, raised close to $300,000. So a majority of the funds, if not all, will go to the recovery housing project we're working on or to the recovery programs at various colleges in the state of Michigan so that, that people can feel safe. People need to talk about this. And people need, if you have drugs in your home, dispose of them safely. You can take them to police stations. Uh, no one's going to ask questions. There are ways to dispose of them. You can Google it. You can put them in coffee grinds. Uh, that's one way of getting in a rhythm or with bleach, etc. But, you know, kids can come over, 13, 14-year-old kids, and go, let's go over to Grandpa's house. And Grandpa had knee surgery medication and he's got pills in his medicine cabinet from a year ago which are just sitting there and ripe for these kids to take and I've seen it too often and they're taking them get rid of unused medication in your house you don't know where it's going get rid of it it shouldn't be sitting there and now doctors are starting to prescribe less which is a great thing and uh, that's what has to happen so it's a long process it's going to be probably another 10 to 15 years before we see the uh, the overdose rate truly come down it's come down a little bit but still close to 180 are dying daily in the United States and what scares me even more is through this epidemic and people depressed and losing jobs and what's what's going to happen now so we need yeah, to help and, this together and uh, what's what's actually equally as terrifying is that <clears throat> if people are doing what they're supposed to be doing which is staying home in many cases they're staying home alone um, mm -hmm. And if you have those um, challenges, if you will, it's like the worst thing in the world is being alone. Because the, the one thing that none of us ever want to be is alone. And yet here we are. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's interesting you talk about the prescription drugs. Um, when we sold one of our houses, we, we our real estate agent hosted a um, open house. And my wife had um, a bad back and had been prescribed drugs for the back. And we came home from the open house and somebody in the open house stole them. Mm -hmm. And here in Washington, uh, it's not easy to get them again. And even though we called the doctor, they wouldn't re-prescribe them. Like they, they thought she was an addict and had abused them and said, no, I, I can't. Like I gave them to you yesterday. I gave you enough for this. If they're all gone, I could lose my license by subscribe, uh, prescribing them again. Right. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it, I mean, that's a bad thing in this case when those who are affected by it and do need them, you're right. And that, that's that in the cracks there that when that falls through and that's a bit of, that's a lot of an issue for those who truly need them, but those that don't and who doctor shopping shopping. And now with the, uh, the MAT program, you can, you can find that. And, it, and it's, it's a lot better than it used to be. And, um, they've cut down a lot on that, but I can see why they're, they're not prescribing. And Jamie, for Jamie, you know, his started in high school with Adderall and I'm, I hate Adderall. 
I hate using the word hate, but I hate Adderall and kids abuse it. And Jamie did. Jamie told us years later and he graduated with a 3.5 from Michigan State. He wasn't a dummy by any stretch. He really wanted to work at things. He was a pretty bright kid. And he started Adderall in high school because he thought he needed more time in exams, went to a psychiatrist, gave him the pills, said he had ADD. We don't believe he had ADD. Jamie told us later he faked the test to get the Adderall. So he thinks it helped him get more, you know, the teachers knew he needed more time in exams. Okay, whatever. But then when you get into college and after Jamie had passed a month later, I'm down in Florida. I get a phone call from one of his um, buddies who was uh, in the uh, frat. He was in during his freshman year at Michigan State and, and apologized to me wanting my forgiveness. And he had been suicidal in that he was the one who turned Jamie on to the opioids just as a lark in the room and Jamie got hooked. You can be hooked within three to five days and kids are going, hey, a doctor prescribed it can't be bad, can't kill you. <laughs> Eventually it will. And what happened was Jamie continued to get the Adderall and we didn't know anything about the opioids at the time. And Jamie could get from his doctor as much Adderall as he wanted and you sell the Adderall uh, for the opioids. And then when you run out of opioids, you uh, turn to heroin which Jamie was deathly scared of needles, so that wasn't his thing, but heroin, pill form, lace of fentanyl, and then ultimately you die. Scott Oak, who lost his son, Bruce, um, some four years before Jamie died, and Scott reached out quite a bit to me and, and me to him, and he was so wonderful to, to cry to at the time because those who have lost can have that empathy and, and know you can converse freely and, and lean into that those tears and, and how life sucks at the time. And Scott said to me, did Jamie ever ask you for $25 here or $25 there going into a bar? And I said, when didn't he ask for money? <laughs> he said, Kenny, the 25 bucks was a cost of an opioid. And who knew? I don't know how much money Jamie took from me over the years, but we knew nothing of that. He's away at school. He could come home. He could hide it. Addicts can turn on a dime. They can lie right in your face. I've seen it. And then they become absolutely miserable. And you go, where's my kid? And when Jamie went through rehab here and was actually clean for like 10 or 11 days, and I said, I got my kid back. And then when he went to Florida and he finally agreed, dad, I need to go to rehab. I need to get out of here. And he went to Florida. We didn't tell anyone, not even my family knew. So you can imagine the shock to my family when I called them and told them Jamie had passed. They said, from what? Because Jamie would call from Florida. We'd be over there. I'd be visiting. They'd had no idea. Because again, the shame and stigma, and Jamie didn't want anyone to know. But those days when he went into Beachway Therapy in Florida, when he finally agreed to leave Michigan and went there, and after you don't talk to him for two to three weeks, and then you start talking on the phone, you go, oh my God, we could talk for an hour. Had my kid back. It was amazing. And that's the difference. And that's what parents need to see the signs when they become isolated, they become depressed, they become quiet, or they become ornery with friends, with parents, and they're just mean. And you've got to see those signs and you don't want to think the worst, but that's a big sign. And that's why when I go speak, that's all I can tell is Jamie's story. What I saw, every situation is different, but it's, um, it's scary. And getting rid of the prescription drugs is a big start. So get them out of your home. So uh, this has been amazing. Um, you know, you've come a long way from... Uh, Forest Hill hockey rink refereeing uh, to the yeah. to Oshawa and, and Toronto and the Olympics. Um, sounds like you're you're in the NBC movie of the week on thin ice. Yep. Thai Babylonia. Thai Babylonia. The Thai Babylonia story. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, your movie, The Philadelphia Phenomenon. Sounds like you were also in that awesome TV show, Due South, which I think was like about a Canadian Mountie, wasn't it? Yes, David Shore, who, uh, David Shore, also um, the executive producer and creator of House and The Good Doctor. Yeah, and uh, David's a, a good friend of mine out in Los Angeles. So, yes, I got to meet some pretty uh, wonderful, amazing people along the way. Well, yeah. so also, I've put this online numerous times that when either um, Joe Bowen decides to hang it up or there's a role on Hockey Night or somewhere doing Leaf games, this Leaf fan wishes the Toronto boy would come home and uh, be, a, be a bright spot again on, on Leaf home games. Um, I think Leaf Nation, not saying anything bad about the folks that currently hold those roles at all in any way, shape, or form, but it'd be awesome to hear you calling the blue and white again at some point. And uh, it's been a, a hell of a career. Like you, you look at and, and listen to your story, there, there's not much that you haven't done. Uh, it sounds like you may have the ADD bug a little bit because it doesn't sound like you sit still for very long. So I'm not sure what you're going to be doing with yourself other than trying to rearrange charity functions um, for this upcoming year that, with everything being on hold. But, but it's pretty impressive, and, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you, Jonah. I appreciate it. And you're right. The charity right now, August 29th, we're, we're roasting and toasting Scotty Bowman, who will be turning 87 in September. So August 29th here in Detroit. And uh, hopefully that's going to be a go. Obviously, things right now, we're in the planning stages. And Dave Hodge has agreed to MC, which is uh, <laughs> beyond my wildest dreams. I'm so happy about that. And Dennis Hull and uh, Jim Ralph and Ian Bagg, who roasted Mickey last year. Um, so I, it's going to be a great night. I'm hoping it'll still be a go, but at any rate, I would love if people could uh, just go to jamiedanielsfoundation.org. You'll see the information there. Sign up for our newsletter. And uh, if it's a go, and we hope it is, um, August 29th here in Detroit, you know, we'll, we'll send you the info for it. It's for a wonderful cause, and it's a, a wonderful night because Jamie loved to laugh. And that's where we came up with the roast rather than a golf event because my son's laughter was infectious. And we hope it will be again for Scotty um, as it was for Mickey. So can you th give, thanks, Jonah. I appreciate you, the kind words. Can Thank you give you. the address one more time? JamieDanielsFoundation.org. So the event will go on. We don't know when. Um, well, we believe so. It's, it's set for August 29th right now. And obviously, you know, we're still having planning meetings and we're all booked for it at Motor City Casino Soundboard, which is just a great venue. I mean, Mickey's, I mean, for a first time event, I think we, from what people tell us, we knocked it out of the park and there were more, more than 700 people there. And uh, Mike Babcock, bless his heart, paid for the, the band to come up, the Jake Maurer band from Nashville, from Tootsie's in Nashville to come up and play and uh, we're looking at a music act this year as well so we're all in the planning stages and once hopefully in the next few months if we can get this uh, coronavirus which is uh, obviously more front and center right now than that uh, but uh, we, we need to raise those funds and if it's got to be moved we'll do it it'll be a year from now after the fact but we hope to still go ahead but please if you go to jamiedanielsfoundation.org sign up for the newsletter we'll we'll keep you posted on everything well do yourself a favor a lot of people don't know this, but Dave Hodge is a music aficionado. And if he's, oh, coming, I know that. And he comes up and you've now have the time. I would reach out to Dave and ask him who you should have. And Dave apparently is as current as they come in, in music. And I'm sure mm -hmm. whoever he suggests um, would be an awesome choice for the event. 
if by some chance we're there uh, in the area, we'll be certain to pop by. I assume you can make donations all the time on the website. Ken, you're a good man. Uh, Hope you'll do it again. And hopefully the season gets back and you're up busy. And uh, it's been really awesome having you. Thank you. Thank you, Jonah. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.